Okay. Exciting. <laughs> okay, well, hello and welcome back to this new series of the Hidden Power podcast. Welcome to our new listeners and in particular, welcome to our loyal band of regular listeners who we very, very much appreciate. And I thought it would be good to, for, for people coming on to the podcast to maybe try and share with them the connecting thread between what it is that we're talking about and what connects us to our listeners. So, Ed, no pressure, but do you want to tackle yeah. that? Yeah, I mean, I was just talking to people who I know do listen. It seemed to me that we, you, are people who... You get all the daily news discourse and the daily media dishing out, but are pretty convinced that there's more to life than what's being served up and who are, can see from their own experiences that there is and are seeking more depth as mm. to what is going on, why is that going on, how things are happening in the world. So key systems thinking concept, what, why, how. Well, that's, yeah, so systems thinking is possibly something that new listeners won't be familiar with, but it's, for me, this, is, this has been the eye-opening thing about engaging in all this with you is the prospect that we have a framework that can somehow tackle these overwhelming uh, challenges that we face in our time, such as, but not restricted to, you know, biodiversity loss, the climate change, all that kind of thing. And there's this sort of wave of what's called systems thinking, which has been promoted by major global organizations and to me, offers hope. I think that's another thing that connects us with our mm. listeners is the prospect that we can actually deal with climate change and come out the other side to a you know very pleasant yeah, world. Yeah, exactly. And, and this, you know, there must be some way out of here, said the joker to the thief. Ah, well, yes, the, Bob Dylan. <laughs> there, there is a way out of here, but you don't need jokers or thieves. You need systems thinking. Yes. <laughs> Basically, and I mean, it may sound like a grandiose claim, but the more you get into it, the more you realise that unless we look at things systemically and we understand how these systems work and therefore how we can change them, then we're going to remain trapped. And I would say that as a novice systems thinker, you know, I've only really come to this through our podcasting. It's apparent to me that systems thinking is something that sort of means different things to different people. But the overriding idea, I think, is that when you look at these things and many other things and look at ourselves in the context of the systems that create them. So, for example, you know, you can make much more sense out of family life by seeing it as a system that has created its participants then you get a clearer vision of what is feeding into the system, what's feeding out and where you might intervene. Yeah, and just watching the Mike Jackson lecture last night, which was done by Peter Senge, which hopefully will be available on YouTube soon. Peter Senge, one of the most revered systems thinkers of the last 50 years, he wrote The Fifth Discipline, The Learning Organization, all of that stuff. He says exactly that, you know, that we start with the family system and how that's working as a system. Which is slightly, it's not just a case of looking 
at the family as if you're an engineer. I think it's also no. bringing to engineering some of the empathy of the more sort of therapeutic way of thinking about things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you if you just looked at it as an engineer, then that's not systemic. Yes. Um, there are all these other features of life. And I suppose in this series, what we're seeking to do, or this mini-series, we're seeking to conceptualise these vastly complex systems at the highest level because where we left off from the last series was really i mean it's the framing of the last series was that if we're to get past this climate and biodiversity crisis we need to treat the biosphere as a central partner in our governance systems but what that actually means i think for the individual and for the national organization they're all obviously highly connected but it's also extremely personal. I was just going to say, just quickly, the biosphere is that part of the Earth's crust, waters and atmosphere that supports life of all forms, uh, brackets including viruses, and the climate, biodiversity, land, soil, air and water pollution emergencies are all consequences of our disruption of the biosphere. Right, um, so that really, the biosphere takes primacy over climate change rather than the other way around. But all of these things are connected because if you sort out biodiversity, you will sort out in part certainly the climate. If you sort out air pollution, you'll sort out in part certainly biodiversity and so on and so forth. So our that's, life... that's a big if, isn't it? And that brings us onto your submission to, I can't remember what the... The whole series of academics were contributing to this thing called Biodiversity Revisited because, to quote, biodiversity, species, species loss, all of that sort of stuff. So biodiversity has not, broadly speaking, proven to be a compelling object for sufficient action to halt the degradation of the diversity of life on Earth. Yet significant knowledge about biodiversity loss has not catalyzed effective broad-based action. So what they're saying was that, you know, we know all of the science about this. We can see, you know, polar bears dropping off ice caps. We, we, we know the rates of extinction are going on. We know how to stop it, but it's not happening. So science mm. is not doing the job. So well, is, um, is it that science is not doing the job? I mean, as you say, science, so, in a sense, sorry, has so done the job. It, 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 yeah, sorry. I, I, you know, apologies to all scientists out there, but in the sense that producing science and producing evidence and producing results has not resulted in mm. us all changing our behavior in, in governments doing stuff differently in businesses doing stuff differently and so on and so forth so the question then arose what is it i mean what's stopping us and how can we turn that round so that we all do get on with it and it was evident and, and we'll come on to these in a bit there are all manner of reasons rationales refugees excuses are found for avoiding the major changes that become ever more urgent and to emphasize the point you were just making philip the the ipcc is now saying we have to get really seriously going by 2025 now if we're going right. to stop the and it's now 2022 so three years yeah. from now is the equivalent of 2019 until 2022 so it's not that long 
you know, to, to, to lay out a program of urgent recovery. Yeah. What can we do? What has systems thinking to say about this dilemma? We all know that we have to change, but we're unable to. We're sort of stuck. We're trapped. The ship of humanity has bravely set off from its comfortable home in search of the new world, but is now adrift at sea, wandering hither and thither as the alternative to entering the difficult waters of doing stuff with determination and clarity. We're going round and round. So, yeah, what can we say about it? And as you said earlier on, first thing is we have to get the biosphere at the centre of every governance model, principle number one, every constitution, law, company law, tax, institutional, how to get it there. Well, in those circumstances, what you do is you widen the boundary of interest. We're seeking higher degrees of abstraction to see what we can see there. And and if we do that, what do we see? Well, you know, we see this angry biosphere. We've we've treated it as an infinite resource, as an infinite dumping ground, Mm. and it's finally got seriously hacked off. Um, Or, I mean, that that gives the biosphere some kind of consciousness. But in a way, what we're dealing with is literally a force of nature. As you say, we can't talk to it. It's just going to do what it does because of its systemic conditions. And all we can do is basically dance around those systemic conditions, either to get burnt or to survive. Exactly so. There is a point, though, in thinking of it as a thing, as sentient in a way, because... That's where we're trying to get to in conceptualising the changes in our thinking that we're going to come on to in this podcast. But as you say, I mean, this is massively powerful. You can't spin it. I mean, good grief. What would the government do? You can't lie to it. There's no hiding place. It's entirely non-discriminatory. Crucial point for all of our egos and narcissists and all the rest of us is it has no interest in us. We're actually only an emergent property of the biosphere, courtesy of the laws of physics, chemistry and biology. We've just evolved. Well, so, yeah, that's a systems thinking concept you're bringing in there of emergence. And emergency is quite, I was reading up about it uh, again recently, as again, a a total novice to this. But Mm. one of the interesting uh, aspects of this idea of emergence is that it's sort of, it's, if you think about a whole as greater than some of its parts, the whole, in a sense, minus the parts, what's left is the emergence. The biosphere doesn't negotiate. The morning's news, COP26, for goodness sake, Mm. irrelevant. Uh, The only thing that uh, can be done is actions and changing actions. And And yes, there there is a a fundamental point, you know, because you were talking about the biosphere as a central partner, you know, in business, Mm. in, you know, in governments and so on. And yet for that to be a reality, I think involves a Copernican revolution, a complete change in attitude, which is much more Mm. personal. And I think one of the things that we want to try and tease out is what that really amounts to. Because in a way, you know, one thing I know that you're driving towards is this idea of whether, you know, is God the biosphere and whether that 
framing will help us. And I can see the attraction of it. And yet, again, anything to do with religion, I treat with trepidation. Maybe we should put in a um, health warning at this stage, (laughs) uh, that we are going to be talking about religion, but we're going to be talking about it not in the sense of how many religions have been practiced and used and abused in the past, but in a spiritual sense that is this a framing, as you say, that can help us to get past not doing anything, frankly? Mm. Well, there's two aspects to religion, aren't there? I mean, on the one hand, the, you know, the kind of the notion of a God, in a way, is could be seen to be dealt with by systems thinking in, in one way, yeah. because, you know, the things that you thought of as being God, like thunder, weather, you know, droughts, um, other kind of macro conditions, economics can be now conceived of as systems that can be mapped out and understood. Mm. Yeah. But and, there's um, also the personal side of it, you know, the, the how one sees and you know, the system of our, our social lives and our cultural lives that gives us a sort of shared language mm. about these phenomena, which apparently, judging by the actions of the modern world, we seem to be completely oblivious to. Yeah. As a social organising force, uh, religion with a small R is tremendously important. And, and this big issue about, you know, on the one hand, individualism, we're all individuals, we can all do whatever we want, we can all have aspirations and so on. But on the other hand, I think we have so lost sight that essentially we act collectively and we need to act collectively and that actually we're an awful lot happier if we act collectively. Philip produces really good mind map, which we'll put onto the show notes no doubt okay okay uh, no pressure but it's, yeah. <laughs> it was more as a thinking exercise but th- that question of the need for collective action brings us to the overall question of why the yes. biosphere has not proved a compelling object for our attention so yeah. you know we need to kind of get an, a clear idea of reality before we can start moving towards a better reality yeah and a key part of this is a, can be easily framed in what's known as the tragedy of the commons. You know, I think we need to kind of nail the concept of the tragedy of the commons. To put it in super simple terms, if people are sharing land, for example, or any other commons, the addition of one extra animal for a person using that land benefits that person. But once you've reached a tipping point of animals on that commons, then the land starts to deteriorate. So for every increase in population of animals on the commons, the commons becomes less productive. I mean, so this is a strong analogy for how, for the tipping point, the atmosphere can take, for example, mm. of fossil fuels or for the amount of biosphere that can be destroyed before we reach a tipping point that it can't recover. So the tragedy of the commons is the predicament that we all live in because we all use this stuff. One of the ones we picked up here is fishing, where things get overfished and then it becomes an exhausted resource and it produces all sorts of other negative impacts. And and this short-sightedness 
Yes. Uh, we then get separated from how these things are produced. So chances are that the fish that I bought yesterday may have come from, uh, well, first of all, an unsustainable stock. Secondly, in terms of getting here, it could have been shipped around the world with all of the pollution that that involves. Thirdly, it may well have been fished by a trawler which is run by, in effect, slaves who are mm. kept on that trawler against their will. But I didn't see that when I was eating that fish. And so many of our supply chains and so many of the things that come forward to us are out of sight and out of mind. We don't want to know about them. And, and that is... all feeds very clearly into the question of why the biosphere has not proved a compelling object for our attention. Because, exactly. you know, if we, if we look at the out of sight, out of mind nature of the tragedy of the commons. And we look at the fishing as a clear example, you know, the buying of fish and mm. you know how, in a sense, how easy it would be to have a, an infinite resource by protecting a third of the fisheries. And yet mm. it has proved so hard to safeguard mm. even that amount. This I think shows the scale of the challenge that again reinforces that the current systems, the current economic systems, the current industrial agriculture and fishing systems are killing us off and mm. we need to get hold of, the, hold of the systems. I guess we can move on things. Well, yes, to the, the global addiction system, yes. Which is absolutely linked. All of us are trapped in these systems. So the global addiction system which is addiction to the technosphere and technology. It's well, I suppose it's, I mean, that's really our own framing of both the monetary system and the technosphere, isn't it? You know, the monetary yeah. system is a lot about passive income, other people's money on the one hand, and people being addicted to power and money at a particular scale on the other. Mm. Um, and then, I mean, the technosphere, we talked about that a lot at the end of the last series, but it's really the systemic look. It's, it's looking at what is also known as the Anthropocene, you know, systemically as a, a metabolism of the Earth's resources through humanity. Yeah, take the word techno in its broadest sense. We're not just talking about smartphones. We're talking about everything that has been produced by humans. You know, the wheel is a piece of technology. Tarmac is a piece of technology. Your house is a piece of technology. This vast um, infrastructure, which in many respects has brought great things to us, but is damaging to the bigger thing, which is the biosphere, the monetary system. We're all trapped in mass consumerism. Uh, we're trapped by the global monetary system, neoliberal economics, into we must consume, economies must grow. And it's got to the point where people, uh, where, where's the phrase? It's become easier to envisage the end of the world than changing the economic system. Mm. And, and you think about that and you think, oh yeah, it has. Again, and if we're looking at why the biosphere has not proved a compelling object for our attention. Well, we're addicted to all the things that our economic yeah. system and the monetary system and the technosphere offer to us. Yeah. Also, again, we have a kind of degree of out of sight, out of mind there. Mm, um, no, very much so. 
I think there is a little bit more to say about that because I feel like I see, and maybe I don't know if other people will see this, that, you know, we talked about this first past the post majoritarian political system. And it's no secret that politics both in Britain and in America seem particularly broken, maybe not more broken than some other countries, but I think so. But there there seems to be this sort of this two party system in a way that, for example, in Germany, there's much more in the the way of coalitions. Mm. And it's always reminds me of that old kind of 19th century imperial divide and rule way of looking at things. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe I'm just seeing things, but I feel that in this, you know, as, as an out feature of this global monetary system or global addiction system, all these things like culture wars, you know, the, the mm. wealth inequality, the general, I mean, to use a Marxist term, this sort of alienation, both between mm. me and the products I use and the people that make it, and then mm. also between me and my control in the environment generally, I feel that these feed strongly into uh, a, a certain amount of passivity mm. with regards to, for example, the biosphere. The, the, it's, it's such a confusing mess. And yeah. there's a sense that people are somewhat held down by this by this mm. system, which deliberately sort of divides and rules on, on various yeah, levels. And- Neoliberal feminism, greenwashing, wokewashing. On the one hand, there clearly is significance and value in some of those things. On the other hand, if we get everyone picking up their bit of identity and identity politics and get them active on all of that stuff, well, they're not going to be looking up. Uh, They're not going to be looking at the totality they're not and looking be... at the totality is a big part of what we hope to achieve with systems thinking i think that yeah. to, to get past the division and try and yeah. see the whole absolutely and you look at the the sort of finer and finer detail of people getting into this purity spiral i can see a point there or sometimes i think people miss the point by mm. actually not looking at for example, the whole transgender thing uh, systemically, I mean, that's something that will be sorted systemically, but let's leave that to one side. Well, I mean, you um, see this on, on the World Economic Forum, that they do a lot of sort of wokey stuff that seems yeah. to conceal uh, yeah, a big, degree because, of... Yeah, because, I mean, it's like, you know, oh, yes, you know, we're, we're all good feminists, and, yes, yeah, so, you know, this is terrific, we very much support that, and therefore that keeps those people quiet and so we can carry on with the bloody great neoliberal system and making lots of money and and elites and all the rest of it. But again, getting back to our question of why the biosphere hasn't proved a compelling object for our attention. Yes. We started with the tragedy of the commons and how the short-sightedness and the out-of-mind nature of it um, has limited our capacity to see the, the full picture. We've looked at the global addiction system with its sort of technosphere and monetary system. But a big part of it is a simple sort of psychological fact, which will be familiar to anyone who's dyslexic, but I think is more broad than that. And that is the question of habitual avoidance. Yeah. And we see this on so many levels. I don't know if you want to talk us through some of that, Ed. Yeah. I've often said, you know, people, climate deniers, you know, how can you possibly be a denier? It's ridiculous to be a denier. Actually, I've always looked upon 
climate deniers or avoiders or ignorers as people that I'm talking at the individual level here, not at the business mm. or government level. People who have, if you like, almost made a conscious decision that this is sound for my mental health. Because if you <laughs> just listen to us, you think about this, you think about what you can do in relation to this, then the best way is just to go, no, no, I'll just avoid it or ignore it or deny it. And then I can get on with my day. So I think it's a mistake to, well, I think in any of this, it's a mistake to sort of criticise or berate or whatever. Mm -hmm. I think that's sound. I think some of it, and you see this amongst the young people, some of it where, where you know, they've been told, look, it's a disaster. Look, it's your, your problem to sort out. Thanks mm. very much. So you get this fatalism. Well, yes. Yeah, well, we've talked about this before, the doom bar. That's if, you know, if, if there's too much doom, you just think, well, what's the point? And you yeah, do, we're, do we're, you we're doomed. We're doomed. What are we going to do? And yes, um, the, your systems thinking tells us that we're not doomed. You know, these things well, are manageable. And yeah, you are. But we we can we can get on with it, and everything will be great. But we need yeah. to get on with it. A, a big challenge is as you go up the scales of wealth. Yeah, people's lives are less and less sustainable. They're more and more sort of high energy lifestyles. Mm. You know, in terms of absorbing the, these, life. these are yeah. The, the the people. The more money you have, broadly, the bigger your carbon and pollution footprint. And therefore, the harder it is to face up to the degree of change that you need to impose. And of course, it's the wealthy, typically, that are in power. If you're listening to this, and I think the figure used to be 10,000, I'm sure it's a bit more, annual income, those sorts of levels of income, your pollution footprint is very, very little. And what can you do to improve things? Well, very, very little. So you then go up the ladder, and of course, there you find... People like Bill Gates, who's trying to justify his private jets by buying forests in Wales, which already exist in order to do this. Well, there's another one. You know, cook the carbon accounting books. Yes. <laughs> the accounting always gets cooked. Well, again, we're, we're uh, back into, into greenwashing. But really, for, for Bill Gates to abdicate his jet-setting lifestyle it would be almost impossible for him. Almost. I mean... Gosh. And then, of course, escape pods, you know, hasten a man, where are you going to run to? So some of them have bought places in New Zealand where they hope the climate is going to remain fairly benign. Then you find some people are now sorting out themselves to escape to Mars. And then I mean, some of really, them, the, the idea, really, of, it's so ludicrous, the idea yeah, that, but this, that Mars this is, will offer you know, the, a safe haven from the Earth yeah, when everything's here absolutely. already. Who the hell would want to live on Mars, even if you could? I mean, deplorable. But then we go beyond that. We've got people now concocting at the further escape pod, which is the metaverse. You know, and, and you can absorb yourself into the metaverse and all will be well. But, but that's how some of people deal with it. You know, on the one hand, mm. you've got deniers. On the other hand, but again, these, these are the symptoms of pods. avoidance, really. All of that yeah. is, and the, and the same with with the techno fixers. You know that ah, oh, yes, well, technology will fix it. Well, technology can help 
in certain circumstances, renewable, you know, wind turbines and all the rest of it, not forgetting, of course, that they themselves take a lot of pollution in order to build in the first place. But yes, techno can help us. But the notion that we're going to get out of this with all techno fixes is another fantasy, unfortunately. And I think that there, you know, it's it's funny. I often find when we contemplate these things, I'm either drifting into Christianity or into Marxism, which, um, <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's, it's not it's that telling. I'm setting out to be a Marxist <laughs> or a Christian, but there's no avoiding that there is this vast constituency of the very rich. So, I mean, I can't remember what the yeah. numbers are globally or in the US, but I certainly remember reading some years ago that in the UK there are 10,000 people worth over... 30 million. So that's what you need to qualify for very, very rich or super rich or something. And of those, about six and a half thousand live in London. And just to remember, most secondary schools are about a thousand to 1500 people. So that's, mm. you know, maybe six, five or six mm. secondary schools worth of people where every single person is worth 30 million. So that, you know, we're talking about an army and then yeah. they are spending on average. Uh, if I remember rightly, it's four and a half million pounds per year on frittering wow. about. Wow. So wow. that's, you know, that's that's a culture yeah. of, of conspicuous, conspicuous consumption. consumption. And I, I'd be interested. Yeah, we, maybe we should try and translate that into just how much old oh, people have, I think, just how much pollution they're causing, you know personally how much well, the... exactly so that's before we even get onto that but yeah. you know that's that's a, a culture of people you know and of course that excludes all the paupers who haven't made the cut who are only yeah. worth 29 million or 28 million oh, or that's you know who could imagine yeah, yeah, yeah. being worth only only one or two million you know yeah, which yeah. are presumably much more numerous yeah so no, absolutely you know and that's again before you get down to the people who might only be worth you know a few hundred thousand which is still you know a pretty comfortable mm. place to be and in support of all of that inequality super wealthy and all the rest of it you have property law and the tax system which again are completely out of kilter with a survivable planet these are major causes of biosphere disruption again out of sight out of mind and, and, and again looking at the sort of the systemic uh, roots to our challenges you know not a lot of people are probably thinking about the tax no. system as a whole but insofar as it sets out to provide incentives mm. those incentives are driven more by the well by the constituency of the richer people and also by the, the monetary system in general yeah and, and now our, by, you, by our needs as, as a species. And exactly, exactly. And, and we penalise people for going to work and for employing people at work through income tax and national insurance. And we reward people for buying up property. And you sort of stand back and think, yeah, is this sensible? Some of the other things that you see around that are getting in the way is liberals, progressives, whatever you want to call, you know, busy themselves applying social justice sticking plaster, mm. plasters to the wounds of neoliberalism, rather than stepping back and going, no, we need to change this. I mean, you, well, you, by, I mean, by, by, by sticking plaster, I think we're back into the divided media environment where you have 
either people virtue signaling and blaming or doing a different kind of signaling for, for the people on the right who are, you know, who, who don't like yeah. virtue signaling or the whole kind of idea of, of their liberty being in any way curtailed yeah. and don't want to be, you know, they don't want to have to play the good game at all. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. And that battle, you know, it's the wrong battle. It's the mm. wrong question. It's, but it keeps people uh, banging away and distracted. Exactly. So, and again, um, distraction is is really the, the same as avoidance. It's the it's the B side of avoidance, yeah. and the avoidance is what is drawing our attention away. You know, it's it's a part of this attention yes. economy, isn't it? It's taking yes. our attention away from the thing that fundamentally needs our attention urgently. Yeah, I know. I mean, I know it's an overused metaphor but you know the elephant in the room i mean it's not an elephant in the room is it it's a, it's, it's a biosphere in the room some of this i mean just to chuck in a couple of other things and talking to people as individuals some of it is that a lot of people do have quite rigid minds and they're unable to envisage something else and and this is one of the great challenges that we have and i mean they may well be at a, at a you know well below 30 million level they may just be a bit fat and happy um they may be thinking well let's wait and see what's going to happen but some of it is that their their minds i guess have been so rigidified and schooled by social norms by the press and so on and so forth that they can't see that there is something else possible yeah, well, this, this is what Nelson Mandela said about F.W. de Klerk, that um, when, when someone asked how he felt about being in prison for 27 years, he commented about de Klerk that de Klerk had a prison of his own to escape from, a, a prison of the mind. And yeah. when I look at this addiction system and I see, you know, frame myself as an addict struggling within it, that is where systems thinking can offer a hand out of that addiction kind of mindset. Yeah. In the sense, you, you've then got these role models of, you know, the normalization of selfishness, as you described it, that it's okay to be selfish. Oh, role, you mean the, the sort of the Trumps and the, the Johnsons? Yeah. Not, not limited the, the, to maybe, maybe all politicians. <laughs> it's not that they're good and bad ones, but I mean, yes, there are, I know. There are some I which, know. yeah, we have a prime minister who should be in a mental institution. And, and yet that's normalised, that it's mm. okay for him to behave like that. You, you've got a Daily Mail that has been busy operating as a political party for God knows how long. You've got people now attacking net zero as, as if they make any difference. That's what amuses me. I think it's Farage, isn't it? We yeah, can com somehow... controversialist in chief seems to be the kind of excuse for a political career. Yeah. Yes, and, and, and of course, in one sense, I mean, do we want to accept that actually, well, even if we do get our act together, I mean, it's all going to get pretty horrendous. No, so here am I, a politician, and I'll reassure you, all is fine. You know, we're going to oppose net zero. Well, I mean, it, which is, again, I mean, we, we've slightly painted a, a, a doom and gloom picture today. Yes, but really, I shouldn't. think what we're, what we're trying to tease out, again, is this question of why has the biosphere not proved yeah. a compelling yeah. object for our attention? Yeah. 
And again, we've, we've looked at the tragedy of the commons, we've looked at the global addiction system, and we've looked at this widespread culture of avoidance. But I think in our next episodes, we really want to get into the question of how the biosphere would prove a compelling object mm. for our attention. Yeah. Because there's so much to talk about in terms of how we can start this Copernican revolution. And as you've said many a time, we need a revolution. There needs to be a radical change in the way we think about things. Yeah, a revolution in thinking. So that's the backdrop. And so next episode, as you say, is so how can we make it a compelling object? Indeed, indeed. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Thanks, Ed, as always. Thank and, you, Philip. And yes, we'll see you next week on the Hidden Power podcast. So Brilliant. see you then.